Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. In, in God's mercy, he has given you his love. For God so loved you that the Son of God took on flesh to bring you into a new life, a life of eternity that has been born into this world. For you were once a people under the curse, but now you've been set free. You once were in darkness, but now you've been brought into the light. You once were dead, but now God has shown you mercy in giving you eternal life. God did this because of his covenant. God did this because of his faithfulness to his promises. And he did this to bring you into his love. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Give thanks to your creator and redeemer. Hallelujah. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John." And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to, their, to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous." so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. 
We'll turn now to verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it came about that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. And his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came on all those living around them. And all, ab- and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. And he spoke by the mouth, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 106, verses 1 through 12. Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord, or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they went into Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, 
They sang his praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Chapter 1, verse 57. Let's continue before the Lord in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you that you have visited us. In our darkness, you have brought light. In our sorrow, you have brought joy. When we were in the shadow of death, you have brought us life and peace. We thank you that you have visited us through the coming of your Son, our Lord, our King, Jesus. And we thank you that this morning we have the blessing of hearing the Spirit-inspired prophecy of his birth and of all that he would accomplish. And so we pray that our hearts would be opened to stand amazed at your covenant love. We pray that you would fill us by your Spirit with this love to go out into the world and to make Christ known. Those who come here with heavy burdens, with sorrows, with anxiety, with depression. We pray that all of us would leave filled with joy and hope and peace as we look upon our Savior's birth, upon His cross, upon His resurrection, upon His glorious reigning, upon our glorious hope of His second visitation. Thank you for Christ. Fill us with his word by your spirit, we pray, for the glory of his name. Amen. Amen. We continue this morning our series in the Incarnation. We have looked at the coming of God the Son as the light of God. And this morning we're going to see the coming of Christ as the covenant love of God. I know that for many, especially for young children, this is a time of great joy, great anticipation. And at the same time, for many people, especially as the effects of the curse upon life bring a sort of heaviness in the holiday season, a sort of darkness, and you just want to get through it. And I hope that what we see this morning, as we reflect upon the prophecy of Zechariah, called the Benedictus, or blessing of God, is that that's the effect in our hearts, that our hearts are overflowing with joy with blessing, with praise to God, and in particular, for His covenant love toward us. Please enter with me into the text in Luke chapter 1, in verse 57, we read, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had, the NASB says, displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. The birth of John the Baptist, and as we're going to see the prophecy of Zechariah of the birth of Jesus, has this central focus in Luke. Verse 58 again. The Lord has displayed His great mercy. I want to unpack that just a little bit. First of all, the word displayed. The word displayed is the same as the word in verse 46 in which Mary says, My soul exalts the Lord. The Magnificat, God 
God's name is made great. It's put on center stage for all to see. It's lifted up. And it's that same word here that God has put on display. He has exalted what aspect of his name? He says he has displayed his great mercy. Again, when we think of mercy, we probably think of the Awana definition of, not, of God not giving us what we deserve. We are sinners. And what we deserve is eternal death and destruction. And as we're going to see, that's a part of what's in this word, but it's much deeper than that. It has its roots in the Old Testament word chesed. And while perhaps it doesn't sound very beautiful, it's one of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. Uh, turn back with me to chapter 1 and verse 50. Again, from Mary's Magnificat, she is quoting from Psalm 103, verse 17, and she says, His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. So when we go back to Psalm 103, what word is this? His mercy that is upon generation after generation, it's His covenant love. Sometimes translated His loving kindness. Sometimes translated His steadfast love. As anybody knows who knows two languages, it's sometimes impossible. There's, there's certain nuances of words that as you go from one language to another, it's just it gets lost in translation. And this is one of those words that is so deep, so profound, that there is no single word in the English vocabulary that could describe what chesed is. But what we're going to see in the, the prophecy of Zacharias, is three aspects to this covenant love that fills out what we might consider this, this strong rope of God's covenant love made of three strands. In verses 68 through 71, we're going to see the strand of His power. His power to save sinners. In verses 72 through 75, we're going to see the second strand of His faithfulness. An aspect of his covenant love is that he never breaks his promise. And third is his power, his faithfulness, and as verse 78 says, his tender mercy. The bowels of his affections from the core of his being having compassion on his people. So we're going to see the covenant love of God revealed in the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. And the unpacking of that love is God's power toward us, His faithfulness towards us, and His tender mercy towards us in the birth of Christ. Before we enter into that prophecy of Zacharias, I want to set just a little bit of the context. As these times are sometimes very hard, sometimes times of, of doubting God's love for us, Israel was in those same times. For 400 years, God had not spoken to them since the prophet Malachi. And so sitting in darkness, sitting under the oppression of Roman rule, many had begun to doubt, perhaps God doesn't love us anymore. Perhaps God isn't powerful to save us from the Romans. Perhaps God isn't faithful to his promises to Abraham. Or perhaps he is powerful to do all of those things, but perhaps he's just given up on us. Perhaps he doesn't have tender mercy towards us anymore. But in the midst of darkness and unbelief, there was a faithful remnant. And we read of two of them in verses 5 through 25. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. 
and their own names point to this covenant faithfulness of God. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Everyone thought that the Lord had forgotten about them. But Zechariah means, no, the Lord remembers. And Elizabeth, her name means, my God is an oath. My God keeps his covenant promises. And so these two who were trusting in God's faithfulness, faith always demonstrates itself in prayer. And Zechariah as a priest, had the privilege of going into the temple and offering at the altar of incense prayers for the nation. The book of Revelation says that the symbology of this altar of incense is that the prayers of the saints that ascend to God are a fragrant aroma in his nostrils. Have you given up prayer? Do you think that God's tired of hearing them? No. Continue in prayer. It's a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God. And God, smelling, hearing the prayers of Zechariah, responded and sent his messenger, his angel Gabriel, to bring a message of good news to Zechariah. That he and his wife, who like Abraham and Sarah before them, were old, beyond childbearing years, but our God and his covenant love is a God of covenant power. And he promised to Zechariah, that he was going to have a son, that his name would be John, and that John was going to be a forerunner for one even greater than him who was going to come. And this ministry of John was going to be to turn back the hearts of the people to Yahweh their God. Now sadly, we know that Zechariah, while being a man of faith, doubted. He doubted the power and the, the faithfulness and the tender mercy of God. And as a result of doubting the power of God's word, Zechariah lost the power of speech. And so for nine months, he had to wait without being able to utter a single word as he saw God's power, as he saw God's faithfulness, as he saw God's tender mercy lived out before his eyes, as his wife, beyond childbearing years, was pregnant with child. And as he grew and grew and grew, as he heard of the stories of John in the presence of, uh, in, in utero, filled with the Spirit and leaping for joy when he was in the presence of Jesus in, the, uh, uh, in Mary. His faith was growing. His recognition of God's power and faithfulness and compassion. So that as we come to Luke chapter 1 and verse 57, in the fulfillment of God's promises, it is no surprise to us the boldness of the faith of Zacharias that we will see. Verse 57. The time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she brought forth a son. God was faithful to his promise. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had exalted his great covenant love toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. When we see God keep his promises, when we see his tender mercy, the result is joy. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Luke is filled with the joy that comes with the birth of our Savior. That comes with the birth, in this case, of his forerunner, John. And it came about that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. And his mother answered and said, No, indeed, he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. 
And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet. I assume it was an iPad. Um, and he wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. As the child is born, now there is the test. Are Elizabeth and Zechariah going to fulfill God's powerful word? Are they going to name the child as God himself through his messenger had said? And we see the faith of Zechariah and Elizabeth proven by their faithfulness. Zechariah says, or Elizabeth says first, his name is John. And the people are shocked. As the text tells us, the expectation is that he would be named after his father, or at least one from their tribe. But rather than follow the, the cultural norm, Zechariah walks in faith. And he names this child, he says, his name is John. And again, his name says it all. The name John means God has been gracious. God has been gracious. God has shown his covenant love. God has shown his graciousness in his power to give to a dead womb life. God has shown his graciousness by looking upon this, this woman who was looked down upon in her society for not being able to have a child and has come in compassion and mercy, in his tender mercy. And he has given her a child. And he has done so, as we will see, in his faithfulness. In his faithfulness to his promise to Zechariah, but even more, in his faithfulness to his people, as we're going to see. And so Zechariah, having nine months to incubate as, his were, his were, as it were, his faithful response, he is obedient and says, no, his name is John. God has been gracious. And hearing this, the people are astounded. And they begin to ask, who is this child? Certainly the hand of the Lord is with him. Something special has happened here. What is he going to turn out to be? And that is the question that frames now the, the prophecy of Zechariah. And Zechariah's prophecy, as John's own ministry, was not so much about John, but was about Jesus, pointing to Jesus. So the prophecy that accompanies John the Baptist's birth is not so much about John, although it is a bit, as we'll see, but it's mostly about Jesus. And as we said, it falls into three parts. In verses 68 through 71, again, we will see the covenant love of God revealed in his power, his power to save. 72 through 75, in his faithfulness, his faithfulness to his covenant promises. And 76 through 79, in his tender mercy towards sinners. Entering in the text then in verse 67. His father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This is something of a tangent that we don't have time to explore, but just tuck it away for your further studies in Acts. It's a sort of interesting comparison between Zechariah and the nation of Israel. In a sense, Zechariah is a microcosm for the nation of Israel, right? God had not spoken to Zechariah for, or he had not spoken through Zechariah for nine months because Zechariah's unbelief. 
but as he recognized the son whom God had given him, then his tongue was loosed, and the first thing that he did in the power of the Spirit was to prophesy and to proclaim the majesty of God. What do we see in Acts chapter 2? <laughs> we see how in recognizing the Son of God, being filled with the Spirit, they prophesied and declared on the day of Pentecost the majesty of God. So he's something of a little microcosm there. We'll come back now to the text. So in Luke chapter 1, his first words, after not being able to speak for nine months, think about that. So if you, if you couldn't say anything for nine months, what is the first thing that you would say? Sadly, for most of us, it would probably be complaining or we would be asking for something. Listen to Zacharias' words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. His first words and his direction for all of us, the application of this text for us this morning comes in the very first word of Zechariah. Blessed, say good words, praise God in whatever situation you're in, whatever sorrow you're feeling, however much you feel like God has forgotten about you, He has not. Praise Him. Bless His name. Declare His, His great covenant love, exalted. Put it on center stage in your life as it is on center stage in the birth of John and Jesus. Bless His name. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This word visited is rich in Old Testament imagery. And in particular with redemption, it is imagery coming out of the Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel, because of their own sin, because of their own idolatry, were slaves in Egypt. But they cried out, they were in a miserable and hopeless condition. And God heard them. The tender mercy of God came and visited them and raised up a Savior, Moses, to redeem the people, to take them out of their slavery and to bring them into the promise of God. And in Exodus 4.31, we read, when the people heard that Yahweh had visited the sons of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshipped. The word visit comes from a combination of two words, one that is skopos, which is to see, and the other epi is a sort of magnifying of that. It's like a supervisor. Now, probably when you think of your supervisor coming to see what you're doing, that's not good news, right? Um, but it is if you're in a lot of trouble. It is if he's the only one who can help you and deliver you out of it. And God, the supervisor, has come down from his throne in heaven to see his children in slavery in Egypt. And he redeemed them. As we're going to see at the end of our passage, we look forward to another visitation of Jesus. And in this day of visitation, as he comes to look over all that is happening in his world, if we are not in him by faith, then that day will not be a day of salvation, but of judgment. But in this case, what, what Zechariah is praising the Lord for, blessing his name for, is that he has visited his people and he has accomplished redemption. The word redemption is at its root buying out someone. In this case, buying out the Israelites out of their slavery to the Egyptians through the blood of the Passover lamb. 
And perhaps part of what Zechariah had in mind was that God was going to come and redeem, take out the nation of Israel out of the oppression of the Romans. But as we're going to see, there was a deeper buying out that we all need as humanity. And that was the redeeming of our souls from sin. As we're going to see, it was the redemption that Jesus came, being born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the curse of the law. Christ has come to be our Redeemer, to complete our exodus by going to the cross, by dying for our sin, paying the penalty that we owed, buying us out and bringing us unto God. And so in verse 68, he praises God for visiting them, looking upon them with his mercy and saving them. And how is he going to do that? Well, we need a Savior. And this Savior is the King from the line of David. Verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. In biblical imagery, the horn is the the focus of power. Think of the horns of a wild ox that's, that's goring. And you find this connection between the king and the horn. It's a symbol of, of power, of making war, of conquering. And he says that he has lifted up a horn, and this horn is the horn of salvation. A horn who is going to save, deliver his people from not only Israel from the Romans, but as Luke gives us his key verse in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And this horn that he's going to raise up, this horn of salvation, is in the house of David, his servant. So we have to think back to the covenant promises that God gave to David, to the second king in Israel, to the king that was after God's own heart. And despite all of David's failings, God promised, God covenanted to him in 2 Samuel 7 that one from his line was going to come. And this king was going to be a king forever. This king was going to rule over all of the nations. And what we find in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, in David's city, is that there is a king who is a savior. Luke 2, 10-11. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For today, where? In the city of David. There has been born for you what? A Savior, who is Christ, the anointed King, and He is the Lord. And Zechariah is foretelling this King prophesied to David a thousand years before is being fulfilled. Verse 70, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah is making the point that God is showing his faithfulness to the prophets, and in particular, to the psalmist. Please turn back with me to the psalm that we read in our scripture reading this morning, Psalm 106. Zechariah is quoting from Psalm 106 and verse 10, in which we read, So he, that is, so Yahweh saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. If we look at the context of Psalm 106, what the psalmist is doing is he's looking at the nation who is in trouble. 
And he is calling out to God to show his covenant mercy, to show his covenant love, to deliver his people. And in order to to call upon God, he first looks back at what God has done in the past, the the great and mighty acts of God's power and salvation, especially in the Exodus. And he's saying, do it again, God. As you have acted in the past, do it again. In verse 4, he says, Remember me, O Yahweh, in your favor towards your people. Visit me with your salvation. There's our word again. Visit us. Be that supervisor. Come and see what is happening in my life, in the life of your people, and save us, deliver us. And what is the basis? What is the, what is the core of his appeal? What is it in God to which he can hold fast the rope of his faith in his time of trial? Verse 1, praise Yahweh. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. For his covenant love is everlasting. What is the basis? of His appeal? What is that at the root of any act of power that God is going to unleash? It is His covenant love for His people. And so, calling upon God's chesed, Zechariah now takes this prophecy and says, God has proven His power yet again. He's going to send a Savior from the line of David. And He's going to save His people. He's going to redeem His people. God has visited us in the form of a baby who was born a king, born to rule over all the nations. So the first point that I want to see this morning in God's covenant love is that covenant love is rooted in God's power. If we're controlled by fear, if we, like Zechariah, are perhaps doubting, what we need to do is to lift our eyes to the one who while born in a lowly manger is seated now at the throne over all the universe. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king over all of his creation. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, this is our king. Our king. And he has visited us as a baby. And he is coming again to to rule over all of the earth. What do we have to fear? What do we have to doubt? Look at his power. This loving God is the omnipotent king of the universe. Not only is he powerful, but he's faithful. He's faithful to keep all of his covenant promises. We've seen his faithfulness to his covenant promises to David, and now we'll see even more his faithful covenant promises to Abraham. Luke 1, verse 72 to show, and then again we find the word in the NASB, mercy, but it's, our, it's that same word from verse 58, to show his covenant love toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. God's covenant love is revealed in his faithfulness to his promises. We live in as fallen sinners. I was going to say in times, but it's sadly always been this way. At least ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, that we are unfaithful. And so Jesus has to say, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. But God, His yes is always yes. His no is always no. 2 Corinthians 1 says that in Christ, all of His promises are yes and amen. 
And as we think about how God relates to human beings, he does so in a covenant. A covenant, one author has described it as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Perhaps even more simply, we could say it's a relationship that's built upon a promise. It's more than the promise, but it's built upon a promise. We see it in our marriages. We exchange vows. We, we give oaths to one another, and it forms a new relationship, a new one-flesh relationship. And God has not remained distant from his humanity, but he has entered into covenant relationship with us and given promises, unbreakable promises to us. God covenanted with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and in the new covenant. God deals with humanity, relates to humanity in a loving covenantal way. And at the root of God's plan for humanity is his promises to Abraham. We read of them, for example, in Genesis 12, as God covenanted to Abraham a seed, a land, and a blessing for all the nations. We could summarize them as through Abraham, forming his, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. The rest of Scripture is the unfolding of God's promises to Abraham. And in particular, the revelation of God's faithfulness to Abraham is in the birth of Jesus. He says again in verse 72, He has shown His covenant love toward our fathers to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham our father. What's interesting to me now in verses 74 and 75 is how He unpacks the, the fulfilled promises to Abraham in the coming of Jesus. He doesn't specifically talk about a land, but what he talks about instead is a renewed people, verse 74, to grant us that we, being delivered, being saved from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The first part of the unfolding of this promise is that Jesus has come to deliver us, to free us from the hand of our enemies. We need to understand this aspect of the work of Christ that he has not only come to free us from the penalty of our sin, which is death, and to give us a ticket to heaven. He has come to free us from the power of our enemies. To free us from the power of sin and death. We are set free if we trust in Christ. Those old sins that controlled us, to which, hard as we might, we always had to keep going back to them, like a dog to its vomit, says Proverbs. But now we're set free. Why go back to slavery? Why be like Israel on the other side of the Red Sea saying, oh, we had leeks and garlic and everything back in Egypt? No, don't go back to slavery. We have been set free from our enemies. To do what? Verse 74. That we might serve him. Without fear. Do you think about this? <laughs> this is the good news. We're set free to serve God. Everyone, every creature is made to be a servant, is made to be a slave. And there's two options. We're either a slave of sin and death and destruction and sorrow and fear all the days of our life, or we're made servants of God. And there's no third option. Who are you serving? 
What God are you serving? The God who we are privileged, saved in order to serve, is the creator of the universe. In the Exodus, Israel was enslaved to to Pharaoh and enslaved to the idols of the Egyptians. And God said, let my people go that they may serve me. We are redeemed to be servants of God and to serve him, he says, without fear. The masters of this world, death, sin, money, sex, these these idols that would control us, control us by fear. But we serve our God, not out of fear, but out of gratitude. Of course, there is a fear, a deep fear, a deep reverence of our God. But it is not a fear of judgment, as if in one moment, this covenant love, he loves me, he loves me not. No, it is deeply rooted in faith that our God has loved us so much that whatever he calls us to do, it's good. Because he loves me, and he's faithful to me. That we might serve him without fear. And how do we serve this holy God in verse 75? We serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Because God is holy and right. Those who serve him will be holy as he is holy. Of course, first of all, in Christ, by faith, we are counted holy. We are counted right. We are sanctified and set apart to be able to enter into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. And as those who have trusted in Christ, we receive the Spirit who is holy, who transforms us to live holy lives, to live in righteousness. How? Before Him all our days. Before we were separated from Him. But now we're brought near. What is your relationship with the Lord? Is he at an arm's length? Or are you serving before his very presence? As he has visited us, is he now dwelling with you? Are you dwelling with him? Is he the center of your home? Is he the center of your life? Are you serving before his eyes? And how? For one day? For two days? No, he says, for all our days. Now and forevermore, in the presence of Christ, in holiness and righteousness. Why? Because he is covenantally faithful. So take encouragement, brothers and sisters, this morning. Each of us know our faithlessness. We know how often we fail our Savior. But the promise that we will serve him in holiness and righteousness all of our days is ultimately rooted in his covenant love, in his covenant faithfulness. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the end. If you've fallen back into sin, as we're going to see in the next section, repent of that sin. But don't cling to your own strength. Cling to Christ, who was born in the fulfillment of God's covenant promises so that we, being delivered from that old sin, will serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. Look to His faithfulness and persevere in our own faithfulness. We have seen God's covenant love and His power in His faithfulness to His promises. And finally, we're going to see it in His tender mercy. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare His ways and to give His people the knowledge of salvation 
by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. So now Zechariah, a newly minted father, picks up the baby that he has waited his whole life to see. And he says in verse 76, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. What a wonderful foretelling of the ministry of his son, John the Baptist. First of all, he is going to be a prophet, a prophet of the Most High. This, in and of itself, is a remarkable thing. Remember, God hadn't spoken to the people through prophets for 400 years. It had been 400 years since someone could say, Thus saith the Lord. And now he held in his arms the last of the Old Covenant uh, prophets. But he was more than a prophet. Verse 76 continued, You will go before Yahweh to prepare his ways. You can see there in all capital letters that he's quoting again from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Malachi chapter 3 in verse 1, in which Malachi said, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Yahweh had foretold that he was going to visit his people again. And this visitation could be salvation, or it could be judgment. And so as the king was coming, as the Lord was coming, they needed to be prepared. In those days, there was no news broadcast to say, the president's going to be coming to this town at this place and be ready. There was no social media. There was no telephones, right? So how are you going to know that the king is coming? Well, they send out heralds, forerunners, to say, get ready. The dignitary is coming to your town. Well, as Yahweh was coming to visit his people, in Malachi, he said, before that, I am going to send my messenger. In chapter 4, he's described as Elijah the prophet, who's going to turn back the hearts of the people to the Lord. And that is exactly, in verse 77, the summary of the message of John and his purpose. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Think about John. John's ministry was not in any way to point to himself, but to point to Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is exactly God's call for us as well. John went as a forerunner of Jesus who was coming to visit them. We go as those who go after Jesus to warn them of Jesus who is coming again. But our goal is, as John the Baptist, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation. To point them to the horn from, from the line of David who is coming powerful to save. To save from sin. And how do they turn? How do they, how do they prepare themselves for the coming of the king? By the forgiveness of their sins. You think about some, a visitor coming to your house. That's both sort of the blessing and the curse of the holidays, right? It's like, with on top of everything else. No, I mean, it's only a blessing, in case my family is listening. Um, uh, but that means a lot of extra cleaning, right? You've got, you got to get everything ready, put in order. Our greatest need, the filthiness that needs to be cleaned up, is not our junk drawer. <laughs> that was yesterday's project. Um, 
it's our own hearts. It's our own minds that need to be turned back to God. We need the forgiveness of our sins. And how can we have the forgiveness of our sins? Listen to this summary of the message of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verse 3. He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Unless we think that this message of repentance was only for John the Baptist, it's the same message that Christ has given to us to go and to proclaim into all the world. In Luke chapter 24, in verse 46, we read, Thus it is written in that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. How do we have the forgiveness of our sins? Repentance. Repentance. What is repentance? It is a change of mind. We have, we have thought wrongly about God. We've made ourselves out to be God. We've perhaps denied His existence, or at least we've allocated Him to some corner of our lives. But He is the center of the universe, and we have a change of mind that says He is God. And in the light of who He is, I am a filthy sinner. I've rejected his kingship over my life. I've done what I've wanted, and it was wrong. I've lied. I've stolen. I've envied. I've hated people in my heart. I don't deserve to be with him forever. I deserve to be in hell forever for what I've done. I acknowledge that he is right and I am wrong. And it's not only a change of mind, but it's a change of heart. Because as we see our own sin, we also see the Savior who went to the cross for us, who paid the penalty for our sins, who died in my place for all of those offenses against God. And our hearts are changed, are melted, are broken before Him. And, and where once there was rejection and hatred of Him, now there is love. There is a desire to follow Him. And there is a change in the direction of our lives, the change of our mind, the change of our heart, the results and a change in direction that says, now I want to obey Him. I don't want this sin anymore. I've been set free, delivered from this sin. I want to serve Jesus, my King, my Savior. And John was going ahead of Jesus, rolling out, as it were, the red carpet, coming to a sinful nation who's saying, this is what you need to do to prepare for the King who's coming Repent and receive the forgiveness of your sins. We go out, brothers and sisters, with the same message. Not a sort of easy believism that just says, accept Jesus into your heart and all will be well and he'll give you all, of, all that you want. We need to talk about sin. We need to talk about God's holiness. We need to talk about what Christ has done at the cross. And as we proclaim the message of repentance, the other side of that coin, which is faith in Christ, only then is there forgiveness of sins. And in what is rooted this forgiveness of our sins? Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. There's our third point. The covenant love of God revealed in the tender mercy Love, compassion of God. 
The word tender, again, is another beautiful word, but maybe doesn't sound so beautiful. It's the word splagna. And, and splagna, in, in an, a biblical anthropology, the seat of our emotions, biblically, is not our heart. It's our guts. It's our intestines. And that's this word tender. It's with all of his guts that he's loved us. A sort of gut-wrenching compassion. At the core, think about this. At the core of God's being, deep in his, in his gut, he loves us. He's merciful toward us. He desires our good. He's not against us. He is for us because he has set his love on us, not because of any good in us. And yet, mysteriously, while we were sinners in need of forgiveness, he has had tender mercy towards us. Think about this. While we were in darkness and in sin and shaking our fist at God, he sent his son so that he might die for us. God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no more tender mercy than the mercy of the cross. When Jesus, being beaten, being mocked, having been crucified, would cry out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the covenant love of God. This is the tender mercy of God for sinners like us. This tender mercy, it's like a bright sunrise that comes after the darkest night Verse 78, the tender mercy, the, the tender covenant love of God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. There's our word again. The coming of Christ, his birth is like a sunrise to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There is a saying, it's darkest just before the dawn. Maybe that's where you are this morning. In fear. In total uncertainty. In the darkness of night when you can't see your hand in front of your face, you have no idea where you're going. You have no idea what obstacles are there. It seems like there is absolutely no light. There is no hope. There's nowhere to go. You're trapped, enveloped in this darkness. And you dare not move. And so you just sit and wrap yourself in your arms and hope that the night passes. Brothers and sisters, our hope is this. The sunrise from on high has dawned. His light has shone into our lives through the coming of Jesus Christ, through the visiting of God to us. What once was in darkness now is in light. And in particular, he says, those that were sitting in the darkness and in the shadow of death. 
two weeks ago I had the opportunity and sad circumstance of talking with a couple, an older couple whose daughter at age 34 died suddenly in a car accident. This couple was sitting in darkness. They didn't know Christ as their Savior. And so they had no hope. And they described the sort of cold shadow that they felt over them. And they thought that this cold shadow was God. And they were shouting, literally shouting at God, how could you do this to me? How could you take my daughter? It isn't fair. It isn't right. And they saw no hope. As the text describes, they were sitting not under the shadow of God, but under the shadow of death. Death is cold, merciless. It itself is gut-wrenching. It is dark and heavy. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you are there. You're not dead yet. But the shadow of death is looming over you. And there's fear and darkness. Where do we look? What casts out the darkness is the sunrise. It's a look to Christ, who has been born to be the light of the world, as we saw last week. To give us hope when there was misery. To give us joy when there was only sorrow. To give us life when there was the shadow of death. To take us from being immobilized, and as it says in the text, sitting in the darkness, to walking, to guiding our feet in the way of peace, to being able to live and move again, to move in a new path. And what is this path? It's described as the path of peace, the path of shalom, the path of wholeness, the path of walking in communion with God. Jesus has come to guide our feet into that path. You can see from the quotation in verse 79, that he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and drawing from imagery from Isaiah chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. For the sake of time, we won't explore this, but I just want to make this connection. That in Luke, one of the, the points of this light and darkness is particularly that it is the Gentiles, those who were not from the family of Abraham, that are sitting in darkness. And Jesus has come to bring light not just to Jewish people, but to all the world. In the words of Simeon, Luke 2, 32, Jesus has come to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The point is this. Wherever you are, how dark the night is, this light has come for you. This light has come to reach to the ends of the world and to guide our feet in the way of peace. To conclude, please turn with me to Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, sadly, we see that in Jesus' first visitation to his people, he was not recognized, and they did not know peace. In Luke 19, Jesus has come from this long journey section into Jerusalem, where rather than pronouncing salvation, he is going to pronounce judgment in his visiting this city. Verse 41, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. 
For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you, surround you and hem you in on every side, will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they won't leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus visited the first time, and he was largely, not entirely, but largely rejected. And because they rejected him, they knew no peace. This is a warning for us. The birth of Jesus and what we consider at Christmas time here is a challenge to us. God has visited us, and that's the fork in the road. His visiting will either mean light and life and peace and salvation, or it will mean sure destruction. Have you, like John the Baptist called us, as Jesus commanded us to go and preach, have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have not, today is the day to do it. Do not wait, because another day of visitation is coming when Christ will return, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and we will give an account for the lives that we've lived. Repent and turn to Christ. What have we seen? We have seen that in the coming of Christ, God has exalted. He has put on center stage display for the whole world to see His covenant-keeping love. His love which is powerful, powerful to save by King Jesus. This love which is a faithful love, a promise-keeping love. No word of God will ever fail. And it is a tender and merciful love from the deepest bowels of God Himself. He loves you. And He has shown that by sending His Son so that He might be born in order to die for our sin. Where are you today in your relationship with Christ? Are you holding fast to this three-stranded rope of God's covenant love? Whenever we sin, it's because we have doubted one of these three aspects of God's love. We've doubted that He is powerful enough, that He is faithful enough, or that He is tender and merciful and loves us enough to do what is best in our life. Our God is good. He loves us. And the proof of that is that He sent Jesus. Let's trust in Him. And as Simeon, as Zacharias says, let's bless Him. Let's pray. Please stand with me in prayer. Our God, we thank you for your steadfast covenant love towards us revealed in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he reveals your your powerful love towards us, your faithful love, and your tender and merciful love towards us. Thank you for keeping all of your promises, and thank you that whatever darkness we might face right now, we thank you for the sunrise from on high who has visited us, who is shining brighter and brighter until the noonday. Oh, we pray, help us to fix our eyes on Christ to walk in the light as he is in the light, to walk in righteousness and holiness before you all of our days, to repent of our sin from which we have been delivered and to hold fast to Christ our King. For each one of us, O Lord, we pray that you would put your finger in areas of our life and sin in our life that we need to turn from and hold fast to our King Jesus. And Lord, for those who have not yet trusted in you, for those who have not yet repented of their sins, we pray that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day of turning from the cold shadow of death 
to the sunrise from on high and receiving through faith in Christ eternal life. In his name we pray. Amen.